0: Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys.
1: Hi Simon. Hey Simon.
0: Well, we're finally at the end of the election cycle. Uh, We're now just two days out from election day on November 3rd. And to help us look ahead to the election and also look back on a crazy last few months, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by our first ever returning guest. Angie Maxwell is an associate professor at the University of Arkansas and co-author of The Long Southern Strategy, a book that we talked about uh, last year on the show with Angie. Angie, welcome back and thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, Thanks for having me back.
0: Um, before we get into looking ahead uh, to the election day itself, Angie, I'd just like to start by asking your thoughts on the 2020 election up until now, and uh, what kind of, it's kind of been an, an election unlike any other, and also your thoughts on the campaigns run by both sides.
2: Okay, well, as you guys have been following, this is an election unlike any other we've ever had for a couple of, you know, key reasons. One, are you know, early vote um, totals are historic and that seems to be across the board. Uh, There's, for example, when I'm looking at the South specifically, there's been 1.2 million people in North Carolina that have voted that did not vote in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, Texas has already surpassed its 2016 total vote. Um, So those numbers like that are in Georgia as well. So we're really seeing massive turnout in the South. And we don't know what that turnout is, but, um, you know, there's definitely more active participation than there has been, you know, in the last, you know, 40 years. Um, Mm -hmm. So that will give us a much better picture of the electorate in the South than we've had before. It's also, you know, the strangest election because of, you know COVID-19 mm-hmm. and that has created some changes to our process with some states allowing absentee voting for just for nervousness over COVID-19 which basically expands absentee voting to anyone who wants to mm-hmm. you know participate that way and that is um that is you know, unprecedented. And and then at the same time, you know, our COVID-19 numbers are completely out of control. The virus is not contained and is increasing. My state had the worst week, you know, Mm -hmm. it's ever had. And so that is a factor that affects everyone's daily life. And we don't always have election issues um, at the time of a, you know, a major presidential contest. That do touch every single person's life. And so we'll see what effect that that has. Um, in terms of the campaigns they've been running, um, you know, Joe Biden until the last couple of weeks has, you know, run mostly an, you know, media-based campaign and not as many in-person events a sort of virtual convention. Mm-hmm. You know, none of those things have ever happened. And we'll see if they can, if they prove to be effective. And on the other end, um, you know, the Trump campaign, though briefly interrupted by the president's own, you know, COVID diagnosis, has continued with massive rallies. And those rallies have been followed by major outbreaks in the areas in which he has had those rallies. Um, So we'll see what effect, We'll see what effect that has, but it's an engaged, I mean, it's an engaged electorate. Like I've never, Mm -hmm. you know, I've never seen before. People I know personally who just never pay attention and never vote have all voted, you know, early. So, Um, and there's constant, the third thing besides, you know, this engaged electorate and the COVID-19 factor is just the constant legal challenges Mm-hmm. By the GOP to suppress the vote. Yeah. Those num that you know that's all it's always been an issue, but it's at a whole different level this time with court cases constantly being filed to stop the counting of absentee ballots to limit. The number of drop-off locations for absentee ballots to insist that ballots be counted by a certain time
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: some states have regulations saying they can't count early ballot um absentee ballots until election day yep so this thing could drag on you know for a while um it just that kind of we'll know we'll know more on tuesday evening
0: right like, hopefully yes hmm. um So looking at some of the forecast maps for this election, there are more southern states in play for the Democrats than perhaps there wasn't, or than Democrats were able to win in 2016, most notably uh, Georgia and Florida. Before we get into the key states, Sanjia, I was just wondering, from your own perspective, what is life like in Arkansas right now with a build-up to the election, um, specifically thinking with Arkansas projected at least to vote very heavily again for President Trump?
2: Sure. Well, Arkansas, um, it should dramatically surpass its vote turnout. Not to the same degree as places like Texas and, you mm-hmm. know, Florida. But there's already been about nine hundred thousand ballots cast, and we, you know, project a total ballots of one point two or one point three, mm-hmm. you know, million. So, you know, we're seventy five percent there, um, which is unprecedented. The major race to watch in Arkansas that does have a chance of being a you know pickup for Democrats is we have four U.S. congressional districts in the state and one of them district two which is Little Rock area um, and the counties around it is neck and neck with um, the current incumbent Republican French Hill and the Democratic challenger Who's Joyce Elliott? She's a state senator, an African American woman, who is a 30-year school teacher, high school teacher. And mm-hmm. if she manages to flip that seat, she'll be the first African American elected to national office from Arkansas in its mm-hmm. entire history. So there's a lot of work and a lot of energy and a lot of focus on that race. And it it will be it will be neck and neck. Um, if she pulls it out, it'll be a major triumph. Um, in the state.
0: Um, so, so branching outside from Arkansas, then, um, what are the key states going to be for this election? And what, what the poll? What's the polling looking like um, for those states?
2: Well, you know, after twenty after twenty sixteen, you know, the focus was all on Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, those three states that you know, total of a hundred thousand votes between the three of them, you know, lost Hillary Clinton the electoral map even though she won the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Um, Wisconsin and Michigan are polling very high. um, For Biden, Pennsylvania, it goes kind of back and forth. It's a little closer, and that's where the major legal challenges have been. However, you know, a lot of us in the South have been really focused on saying invest in the region. If North Carolina is picked up, you know, it can cancel out. The need for Pennsylvania. If mm-hmm. Texas turns blue,
0: yes, well, wow. <laughs> um,
2: it's it, there's there's basically no path.
0: Game over for Republicans,
2: for yeah. and so that's huge. Georgia um, was so close for Obama, and mm-hmm. it's been building there since Stacey Abrams gubernatorial campaign in two thousand and eighteen, um, which was fifty thousand vote difference and a lot of accusations of voter suppression. But they've built on her network and it is a definite possibility. It is in play. Florida, you know, Florida always goes back and forth. This has been going on for 20 years and actually even longer, but it did go blue for Obama. Um, Obama had won Florida, North Carolina and Virginia. He didn't need any of those for Hmm. his, you know, he would have won without them, but um, there's been long-term efforts in those states to try to, you know, build a democratic infrastructure Florida will be close. A lot of it is new voters and we do not know which way they break, but so all eyes really are on Virginia will go blue, but you know, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas. Um, and I think that Florida is probably the least likely mm-hmm. um, to go. Um, but, you know, if, I mean, to have five states in the South out of 11 really in play. And South Carolina, I mean, you could see a Senate seat pickup. It'll be very close. It it with Lindsey Graham's seat with mm-hmm. the challenger Jamie, you know, Jamie Harrison. So that's also a very competitive race. Um and you know, two-party competition is so good for the region um mm-hmm. because it you know, it makes it it drives turnout. It makes there be kind of a contest of ideas instead of just, you know, a fight over personality within one party. Um, so I'm I'm happy to see so much money and investment in the South. Uh, Kamala Harris traveled to Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, on Friday it's the first you know person from the Democratic ticket that has really campaigned there in person in like 40 years. Oh wow! Um, so we're seeing. We're seeing really some some renewed efforts by Democrats to compete there, and it won't it won't all happen in one cycle, but it's building. Texas is building on Beto O'Rourke's you mm-hmm. know loss, Georgia on Stacey Abrams. Like, it just takes time. That long Southern strategy, the long part is what is you know critical for people to know and understand. So
0: is, is it fair to say then that? Although you know, as you say, certain states aren't going to turn blue this time. The fact that Texas may be purple this time around, you know, it might be getting closer to turning blue. And the fact that you know, Generation Z, at least for anecdotally, seems to be so so far mm-hmm. against the Republican agenda. Is do you think we'll see a renewed interest kind of going forward for the Democrats in the I, South?
2: I do think so. And even in the states that aren't even close, like Arkansas, Alabama. There are groups starting to organize, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to, it's never just one charismatic candidate that can do a lot, but you have to have an infrastructure. You have to have county party captains and you have to have, you know, networks and outreach and you have to have data and, you know, field operations that build from cycle to cycle. Um, And I think there's an effort by some of these, you know, organizations to really organize, that kind of infrastructure now some of it's thwarted this cycle you know we can't knock on doors like that is such a critical part of field operations to get the vote out because of covid Um, so had that been an option for a lot of campaigns and rallies and stuff. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But even in deep red places like Alabama, there are groups starting to invest and organize. North Carolina started about ten years ago. Virginia started about twelve years ago, and so you see the results of that. You know that mm-hmm. time and effort. So I do think that the South is the new, you know, competitive place, um, and I'm I'm really happy to see it.
0: Um, Just switching things up, Vaughn, um, can you tell us what's going on in your home state in Pennsylvania and specifically with regards to the mail-in ballots?
3: Okay, yes. Um, So, Pennsylvania, a lot of people do have their eyes on Pennsylvania right now for the polling. Um, And a lot of people are saying that it's going to come down to Pennsylvania, but I don't know how much I agree with that. a little history, Pennsylvania is a a swing state. Um, They voted Democrat in 2004, 2008 and 2012 and then went Trump in 2016 by 0.7 points. Um, So it's it's very much a kind of up in the air swing state. Um, It's always a very close kind of race there. So with that, Um, They're both campaigning hard in Pennsylvania. Biden's in Philly right now. Uh, Trump was there the last couple days. He had like four rallies in one day around Pennsylvania. Um, Last week, I think, or two weeks ago, he was in Erie, Pennsylvania, and he said to them during a rally that they came to that if it weren't for the pandemic he wouldn't be there because he would never want to come to erie pennsylvania <laughs> which is interesting to <laughs> voters.
1: that's campaigning kind of 101
0: isn't
3: it <laughs> yeah tell them you hate them to their face i think that was um, advice wasn't it <laughs> so so yeah pennsylvania is very much um i was talking to my brother about this last night actually and he he pointed out that pennsylvania has Demographic demographics that kind of are representative of the whole country. We have very, very rural areas. We have coal country there. It's part of the Rust Belt. But then we also have these two very liberal cities. Um, We have wide diversity margins across um, races and ethnicities in Pennsylvania. So it is kind of like a, like a smaller kind of case study. So with that said, Biden is really hoping for a huge turnout from Pittsburgh and Philadelphia being the main two kind of leftist in massive quotes, liberal cities um, that the Democrats are vying for. And then Trump is really trying to get to the rural voters and like the middle of the state. Um, With all of that, Trump is really angry about Philadelphia at the moment he's telling Philly that they're being watched at quote the highest levels. Um, And he's like very loosely kind of threatening Pennsylvania by not even loosely, he's threatening Pennsylvania by saying um, Governor Wolf was trying to ban him from certain venues and he's gonna remember that when Pennsylvania needs help in his next term. And when Governor Wolf calls him up, he's gonna say, oh, these are bad people, they didn't want me and he's not going to help Pennsylvania, which is another good thing to tell your voters. It's great. With regard to the mail-in ballots and everything going on there, Pennsylvania is one of those states that Angie just mentioned where they legally cannot count mail-in ballots before election day. Um, And the Democrats in state legislature were trying to put forward this, um, this plea to be able to at least open the ballots and flatten them out so that they can be counted quickly and swiftly on election day. Um, And that was shot down in the state by Republicans. So they literally can't touch mail-in ballots until election day. And the Republicans are also trying to get a block on how long it can take to count those ballots once they are officially opened. Hmm. Um, There are court cases at local state and federal levels about all of these kind of mail-in and absentee ballot um, issues that the Republicans keep raising up. So the Secretary of State um, in Pennsylvania, who is a Democrat named Kathy Buchvar, Book- she's advising all polling places to segregate out ballots that come in after 8 p.m. on Election Day in case they can't actually be counted, um, because everything's so up in the up in the air in the courts. Um, we also have Trump. In Philadelphia, sending in like quote-unquote poll watchers who have been deemed as potentially um, committing voter in- intimidation. They're like <laughs> they're like putting video cameras over poll, um, drop boxes to try and catch people out who are dropping off more than one ballot, um, which is legal in Pennsylvania. You're allowed to drop off like. A few ballots, if you are mm-hmm. giving them from your family and stuff, um, or somebody who can't go to a, a dropbox for a disability or whatever, so um, that's illegal. And the the attorney general has warned that he's going to charge Trump's quote poll watchers and his his like team with potential voter intimidation. He's also telling Philly that. Like I said, they'll be watched at the highest level, and the DA of Philly, the district attorney, Lawrence Krasner, is going full Philly, and I'm really proud of him. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. He's telling Trump that his attempts to suppress voters will, quote, not be tolerated in the birthplace of American democracy, end quote. Um, And then he also said, quote, keep your proud boys, goon squads, and uncertified, quote, poll watchers out of our city. Break the law here, and I've got something for you, end quote. So there's a very wow. Philly kind of response going on and it's fantastic. But again, there's it's an absolute mess there. I voted by mail because I'm over here in the UK and uh, allegedly people are getting um, emails that their, their ballots have been processed or have been received to be processed um, and I have not. So something's going on with mailing um, again in Pennsylvania. And it's just something to be watched. There's so many court cases about it at the moment. Philly also is in absolute turmoil at the moment because of another police shooting um, and murder of a Philadelphia resident, Walter Wallace Jr. last week. Um, There have been protests and riots. The uh, mayor, Jim Kenney, he called in the National Guard this week. So Philly is an absolute mess at the moment. um in terms of how voting is going to work and then the police as they've been an issue for many months that's kind of my wrap-up on on Pennsylvania <laughs> and Philly
0: uh, before we go any further Toby how proud are you of uh, Donald Trump for using Nixonian tactics in all of this
1: <laughs> oh what's Nixonian tactics just, just, just
0: sort of you know general being uh, concerned that uh, people are actually going to vote against him so he's trying to use whatever um whatever policies and tactics he can to make sure that doesn't happen
1: i'm just, I'm just so proud of him that it's so brazen like <laughs> going over there it's not like kind under the cover of night or anything like that <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting and quite quite scary actually it is,
0: it is it, it's it's you wouldn't like if you saw that in a film or a tv show you would just think well you wouldn't get away with that like the president literally couldn't do that but we're just at a point now where it's just
1: yeah and there are like you know, the, the potential mutterings about, you know, this is going to cause like a, a civil war and, and things like that. It is, it's, it's a tenser actually, because I said I wasn't tense about it, but it is a, a tenser election than there has been in, in many years previously, because there's a sense of people are really, really polarized in a way they haven't been. Um, and A lot of the early voting is, is clearly for the Democrats we know that the Democrats will almost certainly win the popular vote. And if they lose, but when the popular vote again, it will be, you know, like almost like 24 years of this kind of stuff happening. Yeah. And the, the Republicans will have less and less legitimacy. So, I mean, yeah, it is, it is not a um, easy time. I and mean, we can see why these kinds of almost Gestapoist tactics are being used in polling places.
0: Yeah. Um... And you we, we talked a little earlier about, you know, the, the record high number of voters already happening. You know, we mentioned Texas already surpassing its number from 2016. Um, obviously, we have very unusual circumstances in the, in the sense that we have a pandemic and there are, you know, people voting by different means than they might otherwise. But do you also think there's a the, the high number um, is a reflection on the, the sort of higher than normal level of enthusiasm from both sides? And is that, A reflection on the fact that this is almost a referendum on president trump rather than necessarily you know a a great candidate from the left who's united everybody is 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 this do you feel this is a referendum on trump and on how he acts as a as a politician
2: definitely i mean i think it's a it's a referendum it's a couple things that's all combining it's a referendum on you know trump and his policies and his attitude and tone and the violation of norms. It's also, I think, a lot of regret about 2016. Mm. You know, I've said this before, but in 2016, the third party vote, yeah, which is absolutely people's right. And I wish we had lots of parties. Mm -hmm. But the third party vote was larger than the difference between Mm. Clinton and Trump in 13 states and one district in Nebraska, equaling 155 electoral votes.
1: Hmm.
2: It's, and I think that there were assumptions in 2016 that she would win. Yep. And there were people who did not, you know, like her, but, you know, assumed she'd win and just, you know, had something else on their ballots, they cared about and then just kind of thought they would kind of protest you know they were not a big fan and i think that people now realize the consequences you know of that i also think the biden campaign to their credit has done a has worked very hard to bring democrats together you know i give a lot of credit to you know the Sanders campaign and Elizabeth Warren's campaign for pulling um, mm. Biden to the left on a lot of important issues, particularly climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he has not um, held back or tried to, um, you know, I think he, it's, it's strange because I think he's moved actually to the left in the general, which usually what we see is people move to the center. Mm-hmm. I think he's actually moved a little bit left, which is a really important lesson to learn in a crowded field in a primary with the gen- massive generational shift occurring. You mm-hmm. know, traditional politics would have said move to the center and he really hasn't done that. And I give credit to a lot of those candidates as well who have really come out and endorsed him and, and not been hesitant about it, you know, um, and shown up on the stump. Uh, or at least the virtual kind of stump, you know, for him. I mean, Democrats seem to realize, you know, this time that what Republicans always do is they circle the wagons, you know, come general election. I mean, 95% of people who voted in the Republican primaries in 2016 voted for Trump in the general Hand in lots of states, he won 30, 31 percent, but he won the most in such a crowded field. And yet, they managed to get 95 percent of those folks to you know show up for him on general election day, as opposed to the Democrats who, for Clinton, it was about 75 yeah. percent. Um, and that's that that's a you know, it's something Republicans have always been a little bit better at than Democrats. Um, and so I'm glad to see you know that effort. And We also, in the polling, you know, which after 2016, we spent a long time trying to understand, you know, the polling errors and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were really, and that's instructive for 2020. So first and foremost, a lot of states, a lot of polls did not account for um, like kind of what we call Bradley effect for gender, Mm -hmm. meaning people that, you know, when they, in the privacy of the ballot you know the election booth just won't pull the trigger for a woman and those are not necessarily the same people who um you know won't do it for an african-american candidate right Mm -hmm. you know we theorize that some of the effect some of the shift in pennsylvania um in michigan and wisconsin from 2012 to 2016 you know, wasn't necessarily economics, but it was that, you know, some of those states show a higher percentage of, you know, distrust towards, you know, female leadership. Mm -hmm. They were fine with an Obama, right? Um, But we're not fine with the leadership from a female. Um, Or we're just uncomfortable with it. And I think again, a lot of those folks that that felt that still assumed she'd win, so they didn't really mm-hmm. think they'd affect the election. Um, that maybe the distrust isn't that high that they would like really want her to lose. They just kind of didn't want to participate in her victory. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, do you so think that, the fact that we've had a female candidate now run for president, you know, do you think it's the old analogy, if you know, the first one through the wall is, is the yeah. one who is the bloodiest, as it were, do you think?
2: Absolutely, I absolutely do. Because if you look at the primaries, Democrat primaries this year, you know, there, not a single female candidate that ran was mm-hmm. ever asked or questioned about, could she be commander in chief? Mm hmm you know, that was the question for generations. And Hillary Clinton really pushed us past that. But what came in after the fact is the, this, what we measure as kind of modern sexism, which Mm -hmm. is not people thinking a woman cannot do the job. It's kind of distrust of a woman who wants to. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that just takes kind of time. It just takes normalizing women competing for the race, right? Um, And Kamala Harris on the ticket as a vice presidential candidate who was chosen, right? She was kind of called to serve. That also softens a little bit of that um, kind of energy in people. And it's not massive numbers, but something that costs you five or six points Mm
1: -hmm. in
2: this climate is the election, right? So that's a factor in what we kind of missed you know, in 2016. And also what we're seeing in 2020 is, you know, there's been a debate for a really long time about telephone polling. And we went back and forth between what the percentage should be between cell phones and landlines. And, you know, if you don't have any landlines, you tend to miss rural America, which is important for us in the South. But Gen Z, they don't answer a land, they don't have a landline, they do not answer their cell phone. They, it's all text and internet.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so we're in this, and so there's been people that have pushed towards that, you know, and it really, right now, for an, maybe another cycle or two, it really needs to be blended mm-hmm. um, between all three of those mediums. So people are watching that and trying to make an effort this time around to that the mode by which you conduct polling you know, is in flux, you know, right now, depending on the generations. And then you'd also see in our polling, that the support for Biden and Trump adds up much closer to 100, which means fewer undecideds and fewer people voting third party. Hmm. When you were in the looking at polling leading up to 2016, it would be like 47% Clinton, 44% Trump. Well, that means you have another nine or 10% that are not, that are voting third party or undecided, you know, Um, and that was consistent the whole cycle. And I remember that making me nervous. Um, But but I don't, but we'd never had third party candidates that were that minor, meaning they weren't in the debates, they didn't have a lot of money at all Mm -hmm. that were able to pick up so much vote. Um, And so I don't like, that was unprecedented too. So it was a a little bit of a perfect storm, but we're trying to learn the lessons from that and um, tweak some of that, you know, polling in order to, you know, give ourselves a more accurate picture this time around.
0: Just very quickly going off on a tangent here, uh, just while we got you, what are your thoughts on Harris as a candidate and as a potential next president as well, looking ahead to 2024, or even potentially before that, with obviously Biden's age, etc. What what do you what do you make of Harris?
2: Well, you know, I think that she's an incredibly accomplished person. She has a really good demeanor on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, personally, I really I thought it would be probably a Biden Abrams ticket until Abrams has really stayed focused on the state of Georgia. My Mm -hmm. guess is she'll run again, particularly after COVID has hit the state so hard. Um, But we absolutely, I mean, if the Democratic Party means what it says, it really has to, you know, know, applaud and reward the efforts of African-American women who have been the base of the party um, and have been its leaders. And in the South, they've been, you know, they've 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 held all these positions in terms of turnout and county captains. I mean, they've just for decades labored in the efforts of the party. And so I'm happy to see, you know, that piece of it. I think that, you know, strategically we didn't need California, but in the mm-hmm. moment of a pandemic, when you do not have time to introduce the country to a new person, mm-hmm. you know, choosing someone who had the name recognition that Kamala Harris had, was critical, you know, mm-hmm. um, so I think she, I think she's, a, I mean, I think the Democrats have a deep bench of talent, you know, I look at them, and I think, who would they surround themselves with in that office, because that office is never just one person, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, and I think we see that more now than ever, it's who you put in charge of all of the, you know, agencies and positions, and there's just, you know, I don't look at, many of the ones that ran and think they're not capable, you know, of doing the job. And Kamala Harris in particular, she has excited, you know, a lot of people. Um, And she's been, but she's been very strategic on the stump virtually and in person about, you know, advocating on behalf of Joe Biden, you know, and that's very consciously done because she is more charismatic. A lot of time than he is and she could overshadow him if she wasn't you know so and she's so likable you know um that if she could easily overshadow him if she wasn't so conscious of you know kind of serving as a surrogate to him but you know there's something about her she's so poised and 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 really tough and really smart um and you know I have no doubt, I have no, I don't think there's a lot of doubts about her ability um, to do the job, should she have to, right, in an abiding administration, should something, you know, terrible happen. Um, She's definitely experienced, you know, enough. And so, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard that, you know, kind of to any real degree. Uh, just
0: if switching I- back to the actual election then um there've been some talk around Trump potentially losing some of the, the voters that he had in 2016 particularly amongst white women and the elderly i was just wondering what are the projected uh, key voting blocks in this election and ha- how do they compare to 2016
2: well this is a great question so y'all everyone's heard the kind of you know suburban women that are you know mm-hmm don't like Trump. I, I I am hesitant. I think that is true. I don't think it's necessarily true universally in the country. I'm, it's one of the things I'm going to be watching the most because Southern white women, you know, and I've said this before, but we all say that, you know, Hillary Clinton lost white women in 2016, but she won white women outside of the South by four points. She lost them in the South by 30. And yet no one will, I mean, very few pundits ever kind of talk about that or, or understand the why behind that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And in 2018, when we said there's such a blue wave, that was true outside of the South. Um, the the races in the South still lost. You know, whether it was Beto O'Rourke or Andrew Gillum in Florida, or Stacey Abrams, that kind of the most notable or famous ones. Um, and they got close. They got really close. It just we didn't see those Southern white women move. Um, and it will be interesting, you know, to see if they do. It's one of the things that I'm tracking. If, if those women start moving, you know, that's a very serious story. Now, what I think is that the root of that, if they do move, you know, in our kind of deep dive, kind of polling, not just horse race, like who you're going to vote for, but we see that Southern white women, you know, they, they, they do not like kind of the aggressive George Wallace, you know, racial politics. Um, They liked the Nixon kind of coded language. So it's not necessarily that they want racial hierarchy to change, um, but they, especially if it affects their life, but they don't wanna defend some, you know, police brutality against George Floyd, they won't you know, so when, when Trump, when that was really in the news, um, not that it's not always in the news, but when we saw all of the Black Lives Matter protests and rallies, Trump's numbers really did start to drop, even in places like the South, his approval ratings, because his language and, um, you know, tweets and stuff that just further poured gasoline on the fire, you know, those Southern white women don't want to defend that, you know, um, they feel like they can't defend that when Trump is much more on message and script, right. On, mm-hmm. and trying to kind of be more Nixon like than Wallace, we see those numbers go back up. However, COVID has affected, particularly in the South women do the lion's share of the decisions about childcare still. Mm-hmm. And, You know, whether schools are open or not, what school is like, having those agonizing decisions that all of these moms um, and some dads are making about what's safe for their kids is frustrating to people Um, and governors that wouldn't issue mask mandates or, you know, in Georgia, the governor even sued the mayor of Atlanta for issuing a mask mandate and tried to block it like that is frustrating um, and hits your everyday life. So if we see those Southern white women move, it's a huge story. And if they do, I think it will be because of the overt, you know, racist politics that they don't wanna defend and because of the effect that COVID's had on their life. And what's important about that is not to assume it's a permanent shift, right? Um, There's, they're, they're much more kind of, they like the Mitt Romney, John McCain kind of personalities. Mm -hmm. and and not Trump but I'm not convinced that they'll move yet we'll see
0: we'll see um we've obviously touched on COVID as as we'd have to in in the UK you know there's been kind of a lot of blame action on both sides when it comes to um Boris Johnson those on the left and the center have been blaming Boris for his sort of slow reaction uh, in points and uh, inability to uh, enforce lockdown, and then those on the far right have been very upset when he does do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, has, COVID, has COVID become a, uh, a genuine story point of the 2020 election in America? Are there people genuinely changing their mind on who they're voting for as a response to how the Republicans and Trump have actually dealt with COVID, or is that is this just kind of been window dressing to the rest of the stuff that's actually been going on with Trump?
2: Well, it's a good question. W- I will tell you that I it has absolutely been politicized. You know, like the wearing a mask is like clear of which party you hmm. almost support. But I I I want to. I mean, the United States had a hundred thousand new cases yesterday. A mm-hmm. hundred thousand, you guys.
0: Astonishing, isn't it?
2: So like this is—it's not. It's—it's—it's it's, it's an everyday, everyday effect, like on your life, and and yet, and I—I I understand. I understand the, you know, a- a- angst about the economy and like shutting down, and all, I get—I get it. But our unemployment rates at seven percent. It was at four when Trump came in. It's not at twenty right Mm -hmm. it's at seven so so like you know a lot of states like for example louisiana which is where i grew up southern state but it has a democratic governor republican serious republican legislature but democratic governor and its numbers are the best in the south because really shut things down and got strict issued a mass mandate early and and now you know some things have been able some things have been able to come back open because they kind of created a culture of wearing the mask. Um, and those folks, you know, seem somehow to, you know, were frustrated at first that their governor was going so extreme, but now are kind of like, we're doing great. <laughs> you know, kind of kind of glad about that, right? Um, but the numbers... I don't, I mean, we're polling on this in the postal and our big national post-election poll to try to figure out how big of an effect, you know, kind of COVID had on it. And I think with your, with your really active, you know, citizens who pay attention to the news and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's just one thing and among so many others, but for people who don't really engage in politics, you know, COVID is in their life in ways that you know have made them kind of political i think it's got to be a big factor behind turnout i truly do Mm -hmm. because it is affecting you know kind of every person's life and really serious I mean, my child is not has not been to school since march Mm -hmm. you know she's gonna you know that is devastating for her and hard for you know kids like her and so you know how that, you know, we say all politics is local, right? But local is the most intense when it's your family, mm-hmm. you know? And I think of all of, I mean, we've had, we're gonna have 230,000 dead Americans, yeah. you know? Um, and all of those people have, think, think about multiplying that factor by all the people that loved them that mm-hmm. said goodbye over FaceTime. I mean, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Whose lives have been affected, um and our healthcare workers and industry too. I just, I def, and with the numbers skyrocketing now, while Trump says it's over, we're beyond. I mean, when they have super spreader events at the White House, when they yeah. cannot protect themselves from the virus, how in the world could they protect the country? Yeah, you know, I definitely think it's a factor.
0: Just on the poll in itself, um. I was uh, listening to a 538 podcast um, recently and they mentioned that one of the uh, the questions that, that was asked was, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And it's a question that's kind of been asked throughout mm-hmm. the elections of the last 30 years or so. And I think normally the sort, of, the, the sort of numbers were generally in the sort of 40-ish percent. I think even Reagan in 84 was something like 44%. But there was um, one response that they got for the 2020 election where uh, the number was actually, I think, 56%, which seems extremely high. And they were suggesting that perhaps there is a sense that it's become so ingrained for Republicans uh, and those on the right to basically say, everything's great with Trump. And Mm -hmm. I'll just say that in general, my life is better, even if it maybe not necessarily, just because we have to kind of, win every poll and, you know, win over every vote. I was just wondering, have, have you seen any anything relating to, um, you know, a, a general sense that Republicans are, are happier than they were four years ago as a result of a, of the Trump presidency and what he's been able to do?
2: Yeah, I actually, we actually published a piece on it this year when we looked at that question in particular. So the um, the question about, you know, are you better off and a lot of it is, you know, economically, you know, kind of, are you better off? And what was so interesting is that when we controlled for things like racial resentment and modern sexism, um, it it turns out that, you know, that question is kind of a stand-in for those things. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So if you if you are if you do not express any modern sexism or racial resentment, then You actually do evaluate the economy kind of based on Hmm. kind of an honest assessment right but once one of those things are hit you will say it's positive and it's everything's better if you're a trump supporter and if you were a clinton supporter you would say it was also much worse and this was right after the election right our polling and so then we went into the American National Election Studies polling, which is the you know longest running data set out of the University of Michigan since the 1950s, big national polls, and they do a pre and a post. We were looking at their pre-election and it was the exact opposite, right? So the people who supported Clinton and were pro-Obama or had been Obama voters were saying things were better, right, and the people who you know, didn't like those folks were saying things were worse, right? So it turns out it's kind of a, just a stand-in for, do you approve or not approve of the current person? Mm -hmm. So I would expect that most Republicans would say things have gotten better, that the country's going in the right direction, right? Um, Because it's just a stand-in. I mean, you see almost the exact same numbers between like, do you approve of President Trump? Mm -hmm. Do you think the country's getting better? do you think you know your like you know your personal economics getting better they all correlate you know at almost 100% D- and so it, supposed- yeah it's not it's not it's not super helpful anymore right it's become polarized now maybe if you zeroed in on just independence um, and really dug into true independence not leaners and cried, you might see some interesting you know variation that could be instructive but that's become kind of a stand-in question. Um, and what the reason that's important is because, you know, we've always had, except for 2016, you know, two white male candidates at the top of the ticket. And so if neither candidate is triggering identity kind of issues in people, then Your traditional questions about the economy and things like that, maybe they were very telling, but, or maybe when we were less polarized, but as we see diversity in our candidates and in their efforts where they reach out to, you know, we're going to have to reevaluate some of those questions that we ask Um, because they have been asked always when it was two white males running and for a lot of our country's history, when parties were, you know, like I've told you all before, but like, you know, Democrat and Republican platforms match on civil rights in the 1950s. They match on women's rights for a long time until they break in the 80s. Like, when on big identity issues, they kind of ran, they weren't, hard, they weren't very big distinguishing issues until the last, you know, several decades you know, those questions might have been the questions that, you know, needed to be asked. But um, I don't I don't think they're as instructive now. And now that was data from, you know, a couple of election cycles. We'll have to see if it continues. But we did show that effect um, statistically and how correlated those things are. They tend to be just an approval number.
0: Did you see any of that change then when you had Obama on 08 and 12 then? Because obviously you're talking about the kind of the white candidates at the top of the ticket and obviously obama was different mm-hmm. in that regard did, did you see any movement or was it kind of not able to track at that moment in time
2: did we see movement of like yeah. white voters supporting yeah. obama or you were movement say, away
0: yeah you were saying there how we had candidates at the top had always been white and it was um it was kind of right up to 2016 but obviously within 08 and 12 we had
2: we yeah had so, what i'm saying is like post 08 mm-hmm. the presence of you know, diversity in some capacity on the ticket, the economic questions we always thought kind of pr- could help predict things turn out to be a stand-in for things like racial resentment yeah. or modern sexism. So when if you hold those attitudes, it trumps all of that. Mm-hmm. And so it sh- it's not as effective, right? In trying to figure out um, approval or like really kind of where people lie. So with Obama, you get, you get an effect on both ends. So you get people who are really low or express no racial resentment, you know, mm-hmm. even white voters who like fight hard for Obama,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and they're very invested in that being kind of like, you know, white liberals. And then on the other end, you get the other extreme reaction, right, which is absolutely not high racial resentment, disapproval. Yeah. And so you you do. You, a lot of times we only look at the effect Obama had on the right, but Obama has an effect on both ends. Does that make sense?
0: Does yeah. That,
2: and kind that, of Hillary that. Clinton did too. But I just think that your economic questions only go so far um, anymore because mm-hmm. I think things like racial resentment, modern sexism, and even Christian nationalism have been triggered so hard and polarized the electorate so much. Um, that, like you said, if it's anything related to Trump, you know, mm-hmm. and their hardcore supporters, they will say everything is fantastic. And we can look at those voters and see that they're even recently unemployed and they'll say that.
1: But, Andrew, given that, why do you think that um, African American voters and um, Latin American voters are not voting more for the Democrats than they did in 16?
2: Well, we don't actually know that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some of that is coming from the target smart projections about like what's the early vote going to be, right? Um, And that is in a lot of Southern states that have open primaries, that is a modeled partisanship that people are looking at. So like, for example, in Arkansas, it's just a total blank slate and they're modeling the partisanship and race of the early voters. And, you know, they have on, I mean, that's what's kind of getting into some of the media about how, what percentage is voting. Like, we don't know what the party breakdown is of the early vote. Uh We just don't, we don't know. There's only a few states that actually provide that information. And if they're open primary states, meaning anyone can vote in the primaries then you might have registered as a Democrat in 1980, you know, and you've never had to change it.
3: You Mm -hmm. might be a
2: hardcore Republican now. So I just wanna caution a little bit with, you know, Target Smart's doing some interesting work and it's getting a lot of media this time trying to say what the party breakdown is at the early vote, but we actually do not know that at all. Um, And when you go back and look at what their modeling of partisanship would have done in 2018, it's really off in the South. And there are some factors for that. And I appreciate they're trying to kind of create a model. I mean, that's what it takes. It's just, it really is getting, gotten so many calls about it. And so I've dug in and I've even communicated with them some um, to try to figure it out. And they're very explicit to say this is experimental and that they are not predicting vote. They're just trying to model the partisanship of early voters. So I say that in terms of the polling, you know, I think there has been an effort by the Republican party to try to win over some, you know, black voters. Um, Again though, I think that the polling, a lot of it's missing Gen Z. Um, We just don't show the same numbers. I mean, our academic polling of just Arkansas that came out last week, you know, did not have, I mean, it had almost universal support among African-Americans for the Biden ticket. Mm -hmm. Um, so i don't know it's hard it's i mean i'll have if if that's how it turns out on electorate you know on election day and we really do see that it didn't you know bring out the same support among african americans you know the biden harris ticket you know then i will be digging into why but like we don't we have not i mean i don't see that in the south I've not seen that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the lines and the the areas where African Americans are concentrated in the South. I mean, the voting numbers are insane. You know, they're surpassing all records. And again, I don't know what those votes are. Um, but I just, I just, I just haven't. I, I'm dubious about that. In mm-hmm. it, at least in the South, maybe I'll be eating my words, <laughs> right? Um, the Latino vote, I will say this, the Latino vote has always been split. Yeah. You know, and that depends on country of origin a lot of times. Uh-huh. So if you are a conservative in the country that you came from, you're likely conservative when you come here, you know, and the mm-hmm. Catholic background and the Supreme Court issues and all of that, you know, yeah. um, I, that the, you know, that's a, you know, the Latino vote is not all one, is not yeah. a monolith. The African-American vote. You know, isn't either, but it has been so heavily Democrat. Um, and it should never be treated as a monolith, but the voting turnout, of course, has been very strong that way. I'd be surprised if that changed. I'm dubious of the polls that say that, but I'm I'll eat my words if if I turn out to be wrong.
0: Um, you, you touched on kind of the fallout of the twenty sixteen election and you know how some of the polling wasn't correct or wasn't able to fully get get the picture if Donald Trump does win 2020 and you know he does win states uh, where he's currently down in the polls how do you think that's going to impact how you know polling is how polling is taken seriously you know amongst news you know amongst mm-hmm. people what what you know oh does, yeah
2: I, does, to, I mean if he wins the popular vote I mean I just think yes whole polling system just burned down and as someone who works hard on national polling Mm -hmm. you know i will say that and but again academics do post-election polling Mm -hmm. serious academics do it because one we don't want to put a finger on i mean it's not our job to influence the election two when you get a sample back like when we get our big national sample back of thousands of people then you know, we put certain parameters on it in terms of demographics. Like, you know, we need to have something, a representative sample of gender, race, education, all of that. But it is possible that a sample comes back and it's really skewed party-wise or it skews much older or it skews much wealthier. And when if that happens to academics, then they go back and talk about weighting the data, right? Beyond the, like the way it's already weighted but statistically saying we need to see where the outliers are this need this isn't representative how do we do this mathematically but that takes time and they're not on a time crunch mm-hmm. so much of the pre-election polling is you know dated if it's 2 weeks old right and so they don't weight the data or they don't actually come back and look and say this really isn't a representative sample. Let's look at every factor, like let's cautiously look at that. I mean, of the three big state polls in Arkansas that have happened, none of them are weighted data. Mm -hmm. Now they're transparent in that they will give a demographic summary of the sample as compared to the state. So you can look at it and go, well, there was a lot more women in the sample than there are that turn out in the elections on average. You can kind of do that mentally, but it's still most uh, media doesn't read polling. You know, um, I mean, that, it's not their job, right? Um, most of it isn't delivered to them in a way that's as straightforward as it needs to be, and most of them don't have that. You know, that skill set. Again, they're not required to have that skill set. So, I think that there. That's a that's a big. You know, factor. I lean much more heavily when I see it's an academic kind of poll. Um, and the second factor is, you know, the internet has made polling a lot more accessible to a lot of companies. And so if you go back and look at like the number of polls that were aggregated in, you know, Real Clear Politics average or 538, you know, when it starts, I mean, they've just, doubled and tripled like the number of companies and you know they're not all quality and i think there's going to have to be an effort to distinguish um even but i know when you aggregate it all and you put it in some kind of polling average it helps but there's going to have to be an effort if that happens to really even be selective and have some criteria about what's included even in those averages does that make sense it does yes Yeah, And and we're going to have to balance the landline, the cell phone, and the internet polling. And if it's done through social media or even Facebook, I mean, you know, we're just in a technologically shifting time Mm -hmm. um, and have been. And that's been, you know, really hard for, you know, pollsters who I think, you know, a lot of them are really, really trying, you know, and making an effort. Um, there may may be, I I would love to see exit polling, you know, done everywhere. You know, usually some of our national media groups pick a couple of purple states and that's where they do exit polling. Um, Or I wish we had states that when they reported election results would give information on race, gender, age, all of that stuff. But usually we often only have that from exit polling And when it's only done in a handful of states, you know, we are limited in knowing anything beyond just the straight vote totals. And and then we make a lot of assumptions and we try to model things to fit states where nobody from that state's included, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will show me too, that we still have a lot of regional variation. Um, And that's, a critical component.
1: And, and why do you think that in 2016, like in October, you still had polls showing Clinton ahead mm-hmm. in Florida and in Wisconsin, ahead, and, and the number of these states that eventually went to Trump. Do you think it was mm-hmm. because we, there was much more undecided voters? There, there is oh
2: yeah, there was much more undecided voters And then you have to also look at, I mean, this, and and no one has time to do this, but you have to look at wording of polling. I mean, sometimes the question when pollsters are trying to really predict, like run up to the election, if you had, you know, they ask a question, like, if you had to choose between Clinton and Trump, right? And those people may be like, well, if I had to choose, I'd pick Clinton. But Mm -hmm. when they're asked, just like, do you intend to vote for you know the democrat the republican you know democrat clinton republican trump or for one of the third party candidates they're actually going to vote for one of the third party candidates you know and and just that effect in 2016 you know was enormous um just I think enormous it
1: was um framed as clinton versus trump in some of the polls without considering the the third party candidates at all.
2: And I'm not criticizing those posters law. because again in a lot of states you didn't even have a Jill Stein campaign in that state or you mm. didn't have a Johnson campaign in that state. I mean it was there was no presence. It wasn't like Nader who was on the debate stage or Ross Perot who was mm-hmm. you know spending millions on advertising. I mean these were you know campaigns that you know, had, we even, I mean, there was even a substantial number of write-in. I mean, there was just like a protest kind of vote that was unprecedented in its numbers and scale. And so I don't even, I'm not even criticizing pollsters who, you know, asked questions that way because usually the, some random third party kind of with no campaign and no infrastructure and no money and not in the debates is the the number of people it's gonna get is negligible, right? and isn't a factor. And, and particularly when you remember that the Electoral College is whoever gets the most in the state winner take all, right? So even if some third party person gets like three or 4% or 2%, you know, the race is between the top two. It just is, whoever gets the most. However, if you don't ask, if you ask it that way, um, you know, you and that third party vote is substantial or people are real hesitant about either one that they're saying and then they end up going third party. Mm. I also I really do believe that people's you know the you know the media really made it kind of feel and I'm not blaming them either cuz it was all a perfect storm but people believed that she was going to win. Yep even the trump campaign thought she was going to win. and you know i wrote a piece about this about like kind of the tragic irony of our assumptions in 2016 because think about the fact that all these people assume she's going to win and so some of them who kind of don't like her don't want to participate in, in her victory you know vote third party and you know to assume a woman's going to win when a woman never has i mean what what a thing right like what an assumption to make but but her competency and her performance in the debates and you know all of that and just i think people were like there's no way mm-hmm. but then they kind of didn't want to participate in it so they you know went third party maybe at the last moment just decided to kind of protest the vote yeah um and I mean, you can, she, she takes responsibility for that. She has said, you know, that, you know, you have to build a connection with those people if you want them to kind of vote for you. I think Democrats did a lot of like, how can you not vote for her? Look at what the option is, you know? And, <laughs> and when the person hasn't even been in office yet, you know, that that's not as effective as it can be like this cycle uh-huh. because you actually have something to look at. Which is look at this, you know. Nobody knew, right? Nobody knew because you've lived it, and before it was, you know,
1: a
0: bad
2: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I had a couple questions, you, Angie. Um, One, I'll ask to yourself first, and then I'll ask ask the other guys as well. Do you have a prediction for this election? You know, do you have a sort of number in mind as far as electoral votes? As far as you know, if you if you had to place a vote as a word, do you think? we are going to see sort of obama levels of of electoral votes from 2008 or do you think it's going to be a a closer Mm. result
2: i just don't know
0: you just don't know
2: i mean i definitely the reason i don't know is because i mean you know texas is so many Mm -hmm.
1: it is yes
2: and then and then at the same time like You know, I get really nervous about the absentee ballots. Like there's been something like, you know, 94,000 people have already voted and there's been, you know, 60,000 absentee ballots returned, Mm -hmm. but there's another 30,000 that were requested that haven't been received yet, or they haven't been reported by the states as being received yet. Now, in some states, people can take those ballots. They request an absentee ballot and they decide to vote in person. They can bring that and turn it in, you know, and then vote. And other places, they have to cast a provisional ballot. It's just different in every single state. Yeah. And so, I'm a, I am ai mean, those are big numbers. I'm just a little, <laughs> like, I'd be lying if I said I, you know, there's too many, there's too many variables there's there's covid there's the lawsuits and then the absentee ballot thing i mean that alone if you're a political scientist that looks at numbers and knows we've never had this kind of system going you know then you're just relying on polling and i just um it's just i think i think i think it's definitely the map is definitely advantage democrat you know, there's so many states that Trump has to win and there's so many more paths for the Democrats, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, they, they don't have to win Pennsylvania if they win this, they, you know, there's just Mm -hmm. so many options, but Trump's are limited, you know? And, and so I, I look at that statistically, but what combination it will be. Yep. I, I just, I just don't know.
1: Uh,
0: Vaughn, do you want to go next? You got a number in mind or is it just, you know, throw a number at a dartboard at this point?
3: It's it's essentially a dartboard because I agree with everything that Angie's been saying. Um, it's so up in the air. I mean, everything about the third party does, like not really being there in this election and having so many of the, the potential write-in candidates backing Biden in this election mm-hmm. is a major kind of shift from 2016, mm-hmm. um, especially in Pennsylvania, which is one of those states that Angie mentioned where the discrepancy between how many people voted for Bernie was higher than how much how many votes Hillary lost by. Um, and a lot of those voters have already committed to voting for Biden. Um, at least at least people whom I know personally or, whom my friends are working with various campaigns, they have said that their kind of um, projection for Pennsylvania's voters are leaning towards Biden much more, um, especially in Philly and Pittsburgh and in the kind of more liberal areas of the state. But again, who knows? Who knows at this point? It's genuinely like, like, Another thing that that came up on here, like a jump ball election, where it can be either candidate and they're both kind of vying for their own, like, platforms and stuff, as we saw with Hillary and, and Trump in 2016. That's supposed to be the one that you don't know. An incumbent race is the one that's supposed to be like, okay, this is more about the president. This is more about the incumbent candidate. Do we want more of what he did or do we not? We shouldn't be this kind of confused about where we're going to be in two days or a week from now if none if the votes aren't counted or however this is breaking i don't know
2: simon is the thing I'm a little I, I, I will just i would i will say that like it, it could it could even be a, it could be landslide biden the truth is it it's like be. we don't have the knowledge <laughs> we don't have the knowledge because when you have you know, a total of like, you know, ninety thousand requested absentee ballots, and you have no idea, in a lot of states, what the partisan breakdown is, hmm. of who has requested those ballots,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you don't know if, when they're being counted, um, yeah. and when they'll be reported, like then we're just going off of polls. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And that's just, that's just honest. I mean, anything that affects 90,000 people in the system or potentially 90,000 people within the voting population Mm -hmm. means, you know, nobody honestly can tell you, you know, I mean, they're guessing, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: they're guessing, they're going on the polls um, because we just don't know how that's all going to turn out. And so then I look at the map and I say, where are polls consistently competitive and which way do they kind of lean and how many of them does Biden have to win versus how many of them does Trump have to win? And in that sense, it's definitely an advantage Biden, Um, but it could all break. I mean, it is possible that it all breaks the other direction. It's just, he has a lot, Trump really has to run the board and the ones that are know on the fence i mean there's 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 no democratic states that hillary won in 2016 that he might pick up Mm -hmm. right he's got to defend and that's a much harder position you know to be in
1: yeah
2: you know even as an incumbent so in that sense that's kind of where i see an advantage you know for Biden, but um, how big it is or what the number, what the final total could be. I mean, it just runs the gambit.
3: I think um, if I had to give a projection and thinking about how, what we were talking about earlier with with masks being politicized and whether you kind of adhere to that or not is very kind of indicative of your political leaning um, at the moment, I think that can account for some of the early voting and absentee ballot statistics. And if I'm thinking about it in terms of that, um, and then also in terms of Trump supporters willingly going to rallies and and being open to going to um, public places with large bodies of other people, then they're probably likely to go to polling places on Tuesday. So if I'm thinking about it like that, and it, it's, it's what, like 90, over 90 million people have, have already returned absentee, absentee ballots, which is like 90 million of
2: the total early vote. It's 60 million yeah. of mail-in 30 in person. Oh, right. Right.
3: Okay. So thinking about on lo- along those lines and what's the voting population, like 253 million in the States are over 18, um, which isn't necessarily the voting population, but.
2: Right. I think that the, um, I'm trying to remember, I'm looking at, I'm trying to remember where I saw the projected total vote now based on, um, based on the early results. Because that's the other
3: thing. We don't know how many people are actually going to turn out on election day.
2: Well, okay. So the last cycle, you know, it was about 130 million voters right? And so we're already at 90 million, which is so, so to your point, which is an important point at the very beginning of the early vote, we were, you know, everyone was like, really excited. Oh, it's so high. And you're going, okay, is this just a lot of people voting early? And mm-hmm. in the end, it's going to be, you know, very similar to the 2016 turnout. But as the early votes gone on, we've seen states surpass the total 2016 vote. Yeah, And so then the only way it stays the same or turnout is if like no one shows up in person on election day, which, you know, is not gonna happen. But I think your point about the fact that, you know, the the in-person voting on election day is probably gonna lean heavily Republican Mm -hmm. because it's heavily, you know, because Trump has sown such distrust about the mail-in ballots and because he's, you know, said COVID's done, right? Yeah. So that would, you know, I do think that the in-person on election day will lean heavily red. It's just a matter of if the early vote in person and the absentee ballots lean far enough Democrat, you know, is to keep the state blue. Yeah. And the, You know, that's that's why election night people have to be really astute about what they're watching, Mm -hmm. because in some states they will report the early in person vote first, then they will report the in person vote on election day, some places they're going to report the in person vote on election day first, then add the early vote totals then the absentee I mean every state does it differently. Which is what you want in a federal election. (laughs) Right? Exactly. So Um, I would just say, don't like, just be astute in mm -hmm. need to kind of not. I mean, traditionally, you know, there's not one party that votes, you know, more, you know, on the Saturday before the election than on election day, right?
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Or that. I mean, absentee votes sometimes have broke a little bit more Republican. There's a lot of military ballots, but other than that, you know, it's not, but this one could be really dramatic. Like whether you early voted or voted election day or voted absentee could be very partisan. Um, And so that that, we've got to keep that in mind as they kind of watch returns, you know, come in.
0: Toby, I believe from your independent polling, you actually have California going to Nixon. Is that correct? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah you guys are making me a lot more nervous than i i, <laughs> I told
3: you i, think, I was bringing um, my dread and fear today
1: because <laughs> yeah, i think with the 90 million people already voted most of that is um going to be democrat there isn't as many on this side as there isn't a third party candidate as, mm-hmm. as um as you said very suitably, probabilistically Trump has to win so many different states that are already tough, you know, already tough for him to win. Um, yeah, I, 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 and then more than in t- 2016, it's a, it'd be a smaller in-day voting than, than, than usual, right? So I do think structurally there's so many positives for Biden going into this. And I know we can't predict what the final number will be or what the final difference could be a lot closer than we're anticipating but i do think that biden is going to win by some margin from from the the, even the list that that just produced for us yeah right yeah
0: I'm actually in agreement with you, Toby. I mean, I'm normally quite negative about basically everything in my life, but I'm actually fairly positive outside of, and this is the, the kind of key caveat to this, outside of, you know, courtrooms, you know, throwing out voter, uh, um, uh you know, vote, actually chucking out votes as, as, you know, in their thousands or actual voter suppression or you know, whatever kind of Republican tactic it is to basically suppress the vote. Outside of that, and that that obviously could be the key to the election, we don't know, I'm fairly confident Joe Biden's going to win quite comfortably. I honestly think he will could get as much as like 368 or something like that as far as the numbers is concerned. I, I genuinely think he'll pick up a good number of states that are leaning his way at the moment i mean i'm wrong about lots of stuff i was wrong about the 2016 election so you know it doesn't really matter. I mean, if, he loses,
1: if but, he loses pennsylvania it's done if he loses texas it's you know I mean, yeah, if, it's done.
0: He loses, if he loses texas it's i mean i don't know what the republicans do if they can't even if, win
3: texas if he loses texas then well, if, if biden wins texas he's the first democrat to win texas since carter right
0: really no, it? I think
2: it's um yes I'm checking I'm almost I mean, <laughs>
0: I mean Some that history is on here. no one's gonna let that fly right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read
3: that today
0: yeah <laughs> well you also read that Mitt Romney was voting for him. well
3: that's also true so we don't trust me with anything
0: uh, <laughs> just for your uh, just for your background Angie we, we have a, a little bit of fun with uh Vaughn on the show. Yes. Uh, Texas oh, went
2: to Carter, the whole South went to Carter, except for yeah. Virginia.
0: Okay, well, Vaughan, right you've <laughs> redeemed yourself from your, your Romney tropes of the past. Um, right, I have one final question for Angie, um, okay. and uh, it was c- c- kind of looking ahead after the election, if you can believe something will actually be over once this uh, w- week is done, if it does go to plan for the Democrats and Donald Trump is indeed kicked out of office, mm-hmm. what are the policies and actions that you're hoping a Biden presidency will will bring?
2: Okay, well, right off the bat, I think that we, you know, the Supreme Court is going to hear the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare case, um, 10 days after the election. I think that all indications looks like the addition of Amy Comey Barrett will make that, you um, potentially the Affordable Care Act to be invalidated. So I think the first order of business will be for the Democrats to, you know, pass a new health care legislation. I'd love to see a, you know, in 2015, the Supreme Court threw out the section of the Voting Rights Act that made states and areas within states that had a history of voter suppression. A lot of those, of course, being in the South, um, had to have, you know, federal approval of any changes they made to elections. They threw that out and said Congress had to come up with a new formula for which states would be looked at and which counties, because it, you know it's kind of not fair to just rely on a historic definition. Um, some places maybe got better. Some other places maybe have done the same. Right. And of course, you know, you couldn't get the Republican Senate to take that up. So a John Lewis Voting Rights Act um, renewal and update, I think will be at the top of the list. And of course, some kind of coronavirus package relief, which Democrat, I mean, Democrats have a whole list of things that they've passed legislation that is just sitting there on Mitch McConnell's desk. So I think that the effort will be to pass immediate legislation about healthcare voting rights coronavirus relief and then of course the big controversial piece will be court you know expansion of the supreme court
3: mm-hmm. which
2: the constitution gives congress the right to set the number of justices you know there are eight administrations throughout united states history that have added to the court over time it just hasn't been done in a very long time in this country and so um, and that will be very controversial, of course. Um, but I think after the rush through of Amy Comey Barrett, I think that you have democratic support for expansion of the court. Um, and so I think that will be at the top of you know their list. and then I hope after they shore up some of those immediate you know issues that we see an effort on the Green New Deal. Hmm. And And I think that's what's driving a whole lot of young voters. And if they do turn out, I hope that we see, you know, Democrats not let that, you know, slide.
3: Yeah,
1: I guess another question I wanted to ask, and this is the question you won't want to listen back to if Trump wins. What do you think the route back for the Republicans would be? Given that, you know, Arizona is hard now and Texas is hard now and f- Florida is going to be more difficult with the s- sort of changing demographics of the, of the country. What do you think the route back would be? Um, do they sort of do another sort of gang of eight style um, self-reflection? How do they become a majority party again? Like, how do they win the popular vote again?
2: They can only win the popular vote right now in one of two ways. They either have to suppress the vote and even if Trump loses, you know, you have to remember that Republicans control state legislatures. They're going to control the redistricting that's happening from the 2020 census. Um, Trump has appointed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of justice judges at every level. Um, And so they will either use the court system to suppress the vote or they will have to reach out to a different demographic, right? And there will be a battle within that party, like there was after Romney's loss, to say, who do we want to be? And unfortunately, the kind of Paul Manafort, Jeff Sessions, Steve Bannon kind of group um, that's been, you know, strategists involved in the party for a long time has said you just have to, you know, ramp up the white vote in any way possible and suppress the non-white vote. You know, um I hope that side of things don't win out. You know, I hope that, you know, other voices in that party that, you know, speak to, you know, back in the George W. Bush days, there was efforts to have a Republican amnesty program. Uh-huh you know, for immigration, an effort to kind of reach to Latinos. I mean, that's kind of, you know, right now, I mean, there could be cleavages on the horizon, who knows, but um, I just think that, you know, I don't think Trump's necessarily going to go away. I hate to say that, even if he loses. I mean, I think that he'll continue. I mean, there's nothing that says he can't run again. Um, I could be wrong, but I think some of his supporters, I mean, I think that wing of the party is, is, is large. I think it can be overcome within the party, but the rest of the party has to be all on the same page, all on the same page. If they're fractured and there's like a, a Marco Rubio camp and then a, you know, camp of people like pushing Mitt Romney, like they won't be able to you know, overcome that kind of Trump wing. So there's gonna have to be a real, um, you know, meeting of the minds between people, kind of the Lincoln project wing of the Republican party. There really is, um, because only if they're all on the same page can they kind of overcome how far that wing of the party has pulled on mm-hmm. um, the Republican Party. Um,
3: if I may add something, coming back to something else that, that Angie mentioned earlier, and just a reminder for listeners. Um, we're talking about the presidential side of this election a lot, but there are a lot of Senate seats um, and re- uh, representative seats in this election, and, Um, As Angie said, there's a lot on Mitch McConnell's desk right now, but it doesn't have to stay Mitch McConnell's desk. Um, And I hope (laughs) to God we can flip the Senate and get McConnell out of that position, because this election is also about that and about the people who the president surrounds himself with.
1: Um, I think McConnell will be fine. He can put up his three fingers. He's he's, he's
3: (laughs) Fourteen hands. Yeah, but that's that's also um, a hundred. Yeah. election. if you don't
2: flip the Senate, if they don't, the Democrats don't flip the Senate, even if Biden wins. Yeah, mm-hmm. a whole. I mean, then we just stop entirely. the damage, but we don't yeah. we don't repair. Yes.
3: Um, yeah. So please think about that going into this election. Absolutely. If you haven't already voted, you, there's work to be done in all facets of the government during this election. Um, and beyond but especially this tuesday
0: and if mitch mcconnell uh, is no longer in charge of senate he'll have more time on his hands and maybe he can join us on this podcast so that would be
3: um oh i'd love to talk to mitch mcconnell simon oh love it God. i don't
0: oh. know who, i don't know who'd be more amazed by that toby or vaughn i think that would be um <laughs> Go
3: full Uh, zilly on him yes (laughs) bring up bring up um DA Lawrence Krasner we got something for you Mitch McConnell (laughs)
0: exactly okay well outside of the mental image of Vaughn beating up an elderly, (laughs) um I'm not sure if there's anything more we want to add to the show other than just there's varying degrees of panic ahead of this this election I think from people on this podcast um and Vaughn you know best of luck um during I mean it's a bit odd for you Vaughn because obviously you're few hours ahead in Mm -hmm. the kingdom so it's kind of a bit odd for hours are you actually going to be staying up for the election have you got no choice but to stay up for the election
3: so this is the thing i was in i was in dublin for the last election and um i stayed up all night made an apple (laughs) pie my other american friends came over and we watched the election and about around like 4 a.m we were like oh dear god what's happening (laughs) and then at 9 a.m we were like okay we need to we need to go to bed because they called the election then. All of my friends went home. We didn't say goodbye to any to each other. It was just <laughs> a day of misery after that. So I've been saying that I'm not gonna stay up. I'm, I'm just gonna go to sleep, mm-hmm. um, watch something that's not the news, probably Star Wars. and But even that's gonna be stressful actually. Um, okay. But um, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do it. I think just the anxiety is going to have me up all night watching polls and different reporters and everything, a couple bottles of wine. It will be it'll be a long night, I think. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep, so we'll see.
1: We'll be yeah, I just remember four years ago like just w- waking up and falling back to sleep and then waking up and then thinking oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Like, I might, the world is so different now.
3: I yeah. might live tweet the night as I drink
0: heavily. Um, you do that from our Twitter account if you want.
3: Okay yeah that's what I'll do then Simon. Tuesday night I'll be live broadcasting my reactions.
0: Um, Angie I, I obviously the hours work a bit better for you. I assume you're going to be up until the uh, awake until the results come in.
2: Um, I'm not sure. 2016 I saw the Virginia numbers and went to bed at 7 30. <laughs> Um, Hmm. because I knew this time (laughs) is a little different because like I said, the every state, you know, there's gonna be a big difference between early vote and absentee vote and in-person vote. And so I'm I'm just I'm hoping the media does a good job of explaining that, you know, to the American people. Um because you know, there are a lot of people that have worked really hard um to organize folks and to count every vote, you know, kind of thing. And I have decided I'm not going to answer my phone mm-hmm. because I just you know, there'll be just constant panic, you know, and I mean, I'm going to be watching real numbers. That's what I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be tuning out a lot of the punditry because it makes me crazy and they have to fill so many hours of air, but they, you know, just, and I'm gonna be looking at real number returns in counties best I can and see if I can see, you know, what trends there are. Uh, and I'm gonna to try to tune out the rest of it and focus on the math.
1: And, and Andrew, just before we kind so I've just been did did an organizer on our campaign. Well, who do you think um, um, benefits more from like last minute, get out the vote. Whether it's whether it's knocking, knocking on the doors or uh, getting on the phone to people. who Which part do you think benefits the most from that kind of last minute?
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, <clears throat> I guess I would say I'm trying to think about this. I mean, I think there are some. probably more Republican voters who, you know, they don't want to vote. They're not going to flip and vote for Biden, but they're just kind of not, they're torn on Trump. And my guess is that, you know, pushing them to roll out anyway, give another Mm -hmm. shot would probably lean that way. Mm -hmm. I know what a lot of Democratic campaigns are doing is just pulling all the numbers of people who've like pulled an absentee ballot or requested one, but haven't sent it in to give them information about state by state. How can they, you know, turn that in? How, where do they turn it in in person? What do they do if they decide they want to early vote? Um, You know, because if we end up with, you know, 30,000 people who haven't turned in the absentee ballots they requested and then they have to cast provisional ballots, you know, which election officials in most states take up a week, up to a week afterwards, to look at and verify that they didn't vote twice. You know, I just think that's that's problematic,
1: hmm.
2: right? Um, now I expect a lot of those will come in in the next day or two, but even um, I know I know a lot of you know folks because they. Most states do provide that information, you know, who requested one are following up with those folks and trying to, you know, too many people think, oh, I'll request an absentee ballot and then, nah, never mind, I'll go in person. And in some states, that's very simple, and in other states, it's not. And so there's a real education effort, you know, on that. But I guess probably the last minute would be, you know, Republican voters who are you know, maybe not quite as enthusiastic this time around. Democrats have been pushing early votes so hard
1: mm-hmm. and
2: rolling out crazy numbers. So I guess the last minute would be probably lean, lean red.
0: Well, on that sobering thought, um, I should probably let you get back to, uh, get back to your Sunday. Uh, Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure talking to you.
2: Thanks so much, guys.
0: Um, yeah, and getting... <laughs> Good luck on the uh, on election day.
2: Appreciate it. <laughs> um, Appreciate
0: from, it. From from Angie, from Vaughn, from Toby, and myself, Simon. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We uh, will have another podcast in the near future, potentially a post-election one, depending on how it goes and depending on how much Vaughn has to drink between now and then. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Uh, stay safe, and if you do out, go out to vote, uh, yeah, make sure you uh, <laughs> wear a mask because you know. Please stay safe. Uh, from all of us here Um, have a good night and goodbye
3: bye bye